0: Like a life without great music or great literature or great art, a life without science can be fulfilling, to be sure, but it is bereft of something that gives experience a rich and otherwise inaccessible element of dimension.
1: That's Brian Greene. He's a physicist widely recognized for his groundbreaking discoveries in the field of superstring theory. In 2008, he was on stage at the Aspen Ideas Festival, delivering his thoughts on why science needs a more prominent seat at the table in American society. He thinks science has the power to give life context and meaning. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Big Ideas, that's what today's show is all about. Each year at the Ideas Festival, speakers are invited to give short but impactful ideas on how to improve life at home, in communities, and around the world. From arts, technology, science, and education, the speakers contribute unique perspectives from myriad fields. The Big Ideas celebrate the festival itself, which brings together great thinkers to debate and discuss the most important and fascinating issues of our time. The festival celebrates its 13th year later this month. We've curated a set of big ideas from as far back as 2007. We start with physicist Brian Greene's talk from 2008. He opens with a story about how science saved a soldier's life. Not
0: too long ago, I received a letter from an American soldier who was stationed in Iraq. And he wrote to me to tell me that a book I'd written had become a kind of lifeline for him. And since this is a book about physics, about string theory, about Einstein's dream of a unified theory, that letter might strike you as odd. But in reality, it speaks to the largely untapped capacity of science to give life context and meaning. And what I'd like to do in three minutes is just give you a sense of what I mean by that. We all know that we begin life as kids, as little scientists, right? We constantly want to know what things are and how they work. We begin as these little, unabashed, uninhibited explorers into the unknown. I mean, so many times over the years this has been brought back to me. I was once talking to a first grade class and I wanted to give them a chance to show me what they learned in mathematics. Perhaps I shot a little too high. Asked them some questions in string theory. No, I asked them a a, a division question. I said, you know, how do you do three into six? A few hands shot up. I picked on one kid. She went to the board, drew a big six, and put a three into it. It wasn't the answer I was expecting. It wasn't what I was looking for, but it was three into six, and it just showed she didn't care about being right or wrong. She just wanted to give it a shot. About six months ago, I've got a -a three-and-a-half-year-old son. Six months ago... I was telling him a bedtime story you know, about aliens traveling near the speed of light, all this kind of stuff. I, I didn't know how much of the story he was really getting. Uh, but he turned to me and said, speed of light, uh, what about the speed of dark? <laughs> it's a natural, kind of obvious question, I'd never, I'd never heard it before. You know, and, and I think a story that really captures this childlike spirit of exploration is one that Ken Robinson tells. You perhaps have already heard it, but it's worthwhile recounting them. A second grade class. The kids are all drawing pictures. The teacher goes over to one girl and says, What are you drawing? And the girl shoots back, I'm drawing the face of God. Teacher says, Well, how do you, how do, you do that? No one knows what God looks like. And she says, In a minute they will. <laughs> This is how we begin life. But so quickly, many of us lose that unabashed, uninhibited desire to explore. We, we become afraid of being wrong. We become intimidated by math and science. Even worse, we begin to think of science as a drag, as boring. And that taps into so fully a culture, our culture, that is so willing on an accomplice, allowing people to avoid a significant engagement with science. I mean, think about it. If I were to stand up here and tell you that I was at a dinner party last night, and conversation turned to an author that I had never heard of, this guy um, Shakespeare or something. Um, you know, I, I went home and Googled him, found a Wikipedia article. He'd written some plays, uh, dabbled in poetry. You know, you'd say, That's absurd. Of course everybody knows about Shakespeare. Similarly, if I said the same kind of story with Brahms or Beethoven or Picasso or Van Gogh, it'd be unbelievable. But were I to tell you that very same story, professing an ignorance of Pauli, of Dirac, of Schrodinger, of Benzer, of Gauss, of Riemann, I don't think anybody would bat an eye. Yet those are the Picassos and the Shakespeare's of science. You see, underlying this is a misunderstanding, or or perhaps a better way of saying it, is an incomplete grasp of a very critical idea, which is simply this. Like a life without great music, or great literature, or great art, a life without science can be fulfilling, to be sure. But it is bereft of something that gives experience a rich and otherwise inaccessible element of dimension. I mean, think about it. From our lonely point in the cosmos, we have, through the power of thought, and exploration touched the very limits of outer and inner space. We've come upon laws that tell us how light travels and black holes form, how time elapses and space expands. We've been able to peer back to a brief moment after the beginning of the universe. We've been able to pry apart matter to figure out the elementary constituents with fantastic accuracy. This is great stuff. This rivals anything that comes out of Hollywood. But yet, when we teach science to our kids, we so quickly focus upon the details. We worry about them solving this equation, or understanding this part of this cell, or balancing this reaction. And when you don't have a commensurate focus on taking students out beyond the stars, science becomes lifeless. But yet, if science is communicated, by showing the big ideas, if science is communicated by showing the exhilaration of discovery, if science is communicated by showing the critical problems from climate change to the opportunities with stem cells to the possibility with nanotechnology, wow, it comes to life. I have spoken to kids about the Big Bang and the black holes to watch their eyes light up. Man, there's nothing like it. I've spoken to high school dropouts who've come upon great popularizations of books on genomics or nanotechnology and have gone back to school with a renewed sense of purpose. And in that letter from that soldier in Iraq, he told me in heartfelt terms how by studying quantum physics and relativity in the dusty and dangerous environment of Greater Baghdad, it convinced him that there's a larger universal reality of which we are all a part. So the big idea, if you will, is really just a humble proposition. Simply this, science is the greatest of adventure stories. And if we can teach it in a way that captures that drama for the young, for the mature, It is our obligation to do that. We need to embark on a cultural shift in which science takes its rightful place next to art, music, and literature as something that's indispensable to a complete life. It is the birthright of every child. It is a necessity for every adult to be able to look out on the world as that soldier in Iraq did and recognize that the wonders of the cosmos transcend everything that divides us. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, my
2: name is Shabana Basij Rasikh, and I was just ordered to tell you that I'm 23 years old. I'm the co-founder and president of the School of Leadership Afghanistan, SOLA. Currently, SOLA is a turbocharged two-year prep program that prepares young Afghans for admission and a scholarship at schools outside of Afghanistan, before pursuing high-level education. Barely five years old, we have helped 35 students from 14 provinces secure scholarships worth $6.2 million into 34 educational institutions in five countries. My big idea is turning SOLA into a world-class, internationally-accredited boarding school for girls in Afghanistan. Now you may wonder, how is it creating a boarding school a new or big idea? Well, it may well be very old, but Sola as the first boarding school of its kind for girls in Afghanistan is not an old idea. In fact, it's an urgent need in Afghanistan. Let me explain why and provide you with some context. There are 66 million girls out there in the world waiting to be sent to school. Those of you who watched the Girl Rising documentary have learned the smart economics behind investing in girls' education. If you haven't watched Girl Rising, I highly encourage you to do so. Afghanistan has one of the highest illiteracy rates in the world. Around 90% of women in Afghanistan have never been to school. Those who are lucky enough to receive an education in the Afghan public schools is spent three hours in a school in a given day, where they learn to memorize, and where they are not allowed to ask questions, to think critically, creatively, or innovatively. Afghanistan is a very young country. More than 70% of its population is 25 or younger. When you hear about problems in Afghanistan, perhaps the first thought that comes to your mind is, Taliban, insecurity, suicide bombers, and insurgents. Well, we have had continuous years of war and destruction for sure. But I believe one of the biggest problems in Afghanistan is ethnic and gender discrimination. Children raised in families where they openly make fun of other ethnic groups. Here is where Sola is unique. Beyond being the first boarding school for girls from across Afghanistan, SOLA students pledge to honor the diverse qualities that each student brings to SOLA community. Our honor code is taken very seriously. Our five-year goal is to become an amazing girls boarding school where students are taught to think critically, creatively, and innovatively where students from every single province in Afghanistan will learn to become Afghanistan's future leaders together at the School of Leadership Afghanistan. After all, not just education matters, quality matters, and education that awakens young people to their responsibilities as social changers and future makers, thank you.
3: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Mark Kelly, better known as Gabby Gifford's husband. We are excited about joining you for a conversation on big ideas. In Congress, Gabby represented Tombstone, Arizona. It is the town that is too tough to die. It's also a symbol of American grit and the Western ethos of gun ownership. You know, when you drive into Tombstone on the interstate, a sign reads, "Gunfights Daily. And costumed cowboys, holsters slung low on their hips, stage shootouts for sunburned tourists who watch from these wooden sidewalks as they eat beef jerky. Now, the only thing that's missing from this staged gunfight is the history lesson. Visitors will leave the OK Corral with souvenirs. They leave with hats and plastic revolvers tied up in plastic bags, and hundreds of years of the American West as cowboy kitsch. But they never learn that the tombstone legislatures, legislators of 1880 worked worked very hard to improve public safety by enacting limits on carrying guns. They don't learn that our Western traditions of gun ownership are braided tightly with a commitment to responsibility. America's most famous gunfight broke out because the outlaws refused to comply with the local firearm regulations. But the 1880 Tombstone Law wasn't part of an anti-gun agenda. It was an affirmation of responsible gun ownership, which is safety through responsibility. Well, today, we have the same opportunity. We can reduce gun violence, not by limiting guns, but through a rights and responsibilities agenda. We uphold the right of every American to own and use a gun, and we commit to a policy framework for the responsible exercise of that cherished right. But what stands in our way is a fractured America. On one side, you have Americans for whom firearms are as common in their lives as cars and cell phones. On the other, you have those who identify gun possession with crime and tragedy. It's a nation neatly divided by its experience with firearms. Well, Gabby and I stand in the middle. We like guns, but our lives have also been devastated by gun violence. Now we need America to come join us in the middle. In the middle, we are defining a positive vision for gun ownership in America, in which our rights are an attribute of citizenship, but it's not a threat or an inconvenience. In the middle, we insist on the responsible exercise of our gun rights. We insist that guns stay out of the hands of dangerous people, that weapons of war are not available to criminals, and that firearms are not just left around for kids to shoot other kids. And we insist on gun laws that reflect our societies, commitment to responsible gun ownership. In the middle, we say no to the cynical efforts of the gun lobby to allow guns into bars and classrooms and college campuses, and no to the philosophy of more guns at any cost. When America follows the gun lobby, we miss a critical point. Our rights aren't the strongest when our laws are the weakest. And when our laws are weak, our families and communities are not safe. Now I'd like to take a moment to introduce my partner, my wife, and my inspiration, a strong Western woman who has the courage to chart a new path, former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords.
4: Stopping gun violence takes courage. The courage to do what's right The courage of new ideas. I've seen great courage when my life was on the line. Now is the time to come together, be responsible. Democrats and Republicans and everyone, everyone. We must never stop fighting. Fight, 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 be bold. Be courageous. The nation is counting on you. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much, everybody.
5: Thank you. Hi, everyone. My name is Hannah Rosen, and I'm a writer for The Atlantic, and I'm going to appeal to the frustrated parent in many of you, although not by writing a children's book with the F word in the title. I wish I had had that idea. This is a vision of humiliation in the United States. You are in your mid-twenties, so you're not a few months out of college, you're more like a few years out of college. And you're living in the basement, which has more or less become your permanent home. And you crawl out of the basement just in time to see your mother in the kitchen getting ready to go to work. And you say to your mother, "Uh, did you buy my favorite Pop-Tarts by any chance? And she says, no, I'm really busy, I have to go to work. Can you just buy them yourself? And then you say, "Um, Can you loan me $5? (laughs) So the point is that in other countries, uh, people value filial duty and sticking around the familial home, but in America, we value independence. Uh, You're supposed to, after you graduate from college, leave the house. Uh, You're supposed to pay your own rent. Uh, You're supposed to find a spouse and raise your own children. But lately, that process has gotten blocked. The latest census shows that in the age group 25 to 34, 5.5 million uh, Americans are living with their parents. And here's what's worse. Uh, The grandparents are moving in too. Um, (laughs) That actually was not a joke. Um, (laughs) That was serious. There is a new phenomenon in America called the multi-generational household. It now accounts for about 16% of American households which is by far the highest it's been, almost since the Great Depression, more like since the 1950s. And the children in this situation, uh, many of whom I've talked to, complain about the obvious things if you stop and think about it. How do you invite a date home? You know, it sounds funny, but that's kind of necessary if you're going to get married. You know, how do you, you go into your job interview and it turns out Grandpa has stolen your tie. It's just kind of a frustrating situation. Um, now, of course, this is yet another consequence of this recession. And the latest string of recessions, which seem to be profoundly altering our culture in permanent ways. Uh, This is a sad result of older people who can't pay their rent, uh, younger people who are having a hard time getting started in life and finding a job. Nonetheless, I am choosing as my big idea to see the silver lining. What is the silver lining? It's this. Uh, The American family is long overdue for a definitional overhaul. Long overdue. We've got 40% of children who are now born to single mothers or at least parents who are not married. We've got gay families, adopted families. We've got fertility technology, which makes almost every kind of family possible. So I'm thinking (laughs) we can stop calling on the traditional family as our vision of the American family and change it to something that allows us to include, say, the grandparents in the holiday picture and maybe even some children who are slightly too old to still be eating Pop-Tarts. That's it.
6: I'm David Leonhardt. I'm an economics columnist with the New York Times. Justice Elena Kagan, the most recent member of the Supreme Court. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the second most recent member of the Supreme Court. Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice some of our most prominent female CEOs. What do these phenomenally phenomenally successful women have in common? They do not have children. I'm well aware that you can name phenomenally successful men who do not have children, and I'm well aware that you can name phenomenally successful women who do have children. Come September, I will work for one of them, Jill Abramson. But the fact is, is that when you look across Society, you see far a far higher share of successful women who do not have children than you can say of men. The Supreme Court summarizes this better than any other institution. The last three men to be nominated to the Supreme Court have seven children, albeit not with each other. <laughs> the last three women nominated to the Supreme Court have none. I don't mean to suggest that traditional sexism has been banished. Far from it. It has not. Women still tend to face a significantly tougher road, whether they have children or not, than men do. They have to work harder and do better. But the fact is that we have made enormous progress against traditional sexism. The gap between men and women of similar skills, education, experience, as best as economists can measure it, the pay gap between them is now just a few percentage points, vastly down from what it was. Women outcompete men at every level of our educational system. And yet, only 15 of our Fortune 500 CEOs are women. Once you leave the economist world of controlling for factors like age and experience and you enter the real world, women make 23% less than men. How could this be? My idea is that we haven't made nearly as much progress against momism as we have against sexism. We force people to pay a terrible price for taking time off, for working part time, for working full time in many fields, but not working extra time. How can we deal with that? Well, I think there are several ways, but I think the first thing to remember is that This is a problem that becomes worse over time. A recent study of MBAs showed that men and women coming out of MBA programs made roughly the same. Fifteen years later, men made 75% more. This isn't just a problem among MBAs either. It's a problem in low paying white collar work and other things. I think there are policy solutions. Universal daycare, which recognizes that the family isn't what it once was. But I don't think it's just policy. I think it's companies recognizing that there is an enormous pool of untapped and underutilized talent out there in our workforce. It is parents and it is in particular moms. And it's building career ladders that allow you to work four days a week or allow you to work seven hours a day or allow you to work eight hours a day and not forfeit your opportunity at big future promotions. Call me an optimist, but I would bet if companies created these ladders, some med would sign up for them as well. I know I would. Thank you.
1: That's David Leonhardt of the New York Times delivering his big idea. Today's show is a compilation of big ideas from speakers at Aspen Ideas festivals over the years. Next, Jessie Norman gives her thoughts on the arts. She's one of the most celebrated contemporary opera singers and recitalists in the world. A heads up, the audio from her talk in 2007 is a bit scratchy.
7: America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea
8: to
7: Hello everyone, my name is Jessie Norman and I'm a singer. <laughs> what indeed is the big idea? I cannot claim this idea as my own but it is surely one about which I am passionate And about which I am pleased to speak at every opportunity. And that is the necessity of the arts in our lives. The need for the arts in the education of our children. I do not mean only the home that I have found in music. But all of the arts. From the written word... To the most ephemeral dance step, from the most permanent of carvings in wood or stone, to a canvas so covered in ideas that it simply takes the breath away. Art brings us together as a family because it is an individual expression of the universal human experience we have so much more in common than we acknowledge. Art comes from that part of us that is without fear, prejudice, malice, or any of the other things that we create to separate ourselves one from the other. Art makes each of us whole by insisting that we use all of our senses, our heads and our hearts, that we express with our voices, our hands, our bodies, as well as with our minds. And in this modern society, art may be the only force that invites expression from the inside out, where the pure light of the wisdom of the soul is realized. Albert Einstein said, when I examine myself and my method of thought, I come to the conclusion that the gift of fantasy has meant more to me than my talent for absorbing knowledge. The gift of fantasy has meant more to me than my talent for absorbing knowledge. Truly, do we need further proof of the benefits of creativity, of fantasy in our lives? Over the years, students of the arts have outperformed their non-arts peers in all of their subjects. Study upon study has shown this. Creativity equals self-knowledge. This knowledge can lead to wisdom and wisdom to the understanding of others. And this understanding undoubtedly leads to tolerance. Can creativity do all this? Yes, it can. I tell you this because we are at a crucial point in our nation's history. On the one side is this wisdom of creativity. On the other is the backlash. The fervent belief that going back to basics, turning away from the individual towards uniform education with the emphasis on the sciences sciences and mathematics Forgetting the soul and spirit of our children. That this somehow is the answer to our deficient schools. I beg to differ. Because this backlash plays on our understandable despair that many children are indeed being left behind, but utterly, we must recognize the danger of putting aside our responsibility to offer children a bright and beautiful path of positive self-expression. When our schools and our school systems say that they must save money, the arts are the first to go. We have to say no to this. Use whatever means you have to include the arts as core content in your local and state schools curricula. Remember your own educational experience and what made you want to learn, what made arts study fun, what made you want to be in school, the choir, the marching band, the dance group, the young and handsome art appreciation teacher. (laughs) Resolve to be acquainted yourselves with the teachings of your own hearts. As I always call it, your soul's music. And imagine if you will, the harmony this could bring to our world. Resolve to make sure today's young minds are nourished completely and that their spirits are encouraged to fly. Now that's a big idea.
8: (laughs) Hello Aspen, I'm Michelle Martin, uh, and I am the other Michelle at NPR, and I actually don't actually have to see the people I talk to every day, so I'm a little nervous, so (laughs) I wrote down what I'm gonna say. Um, My program is a midday program where we focus on the politics, policy, arts, culture and sports but from a multicultural perspective and my big idea is that black folks have not left the building and that Latinos have not left the building and Asians have not left the building and white folks have not left the building. Why do I say that? Because we hear a lot about people of color and we hear a lot about the multiracial experience. I just use that term. We're hearing about the Latino diaspora and how Latinos are the largest minority group in the country. That's all true. We hear a lot about the Asian diaspora and how Asian Americans are the best educated minority group in the country. And that's true. With all that, you'd think that except for the president and the poor, that all the black people have left and everybody else, well, they're people of color. And the truth is that people of color for the most part still live in their own story, which is to say that they still see themselves as black, Latino, Asian, Mexican-American, Chinese, Vietnamese-American, Cambodian, European-American. And when we use the language of the melting pot, as attractive and as lovely of an ideal as it is and it does exist we 're missing the true story and why does this matter? This is not a matter of an existentialist crisis. those are very interesting but It really does matter because there really are very different attitudes about what government should be, what we should do, how we should proceed as a country. There really are. And that's not exactly driven by race and class and color, but it is so informed by that to not notice it and acknowledge it is to really miss it. Here's an example. Those of you who followed education reform in Washington, D.C., you'll know that that was a conflict between people of color. There was a dynamic young reformer, Korean-American, who swooped into town wanting to fix things for the mainly african-american people but what happened is they said not so much and the reason that they said not so much is that they saw the schools not just as a vehicle of achievement for the kids but as a as a as an as a place of employment for predominantly african-american teachers and that they saw economic stability for those teachers at least as important as the education of those kids and you can like it or you cannot like it but you cannot ignore it And I say that we all represent both the promise of this country and its most shameful history, all of our racial trajectories and stories. Did you know that the number of black people with graduate degrees has doubled in this country in the last 10 years? Even. Even as African-Americans have become the most incarcerated people in the world. And the fact is that this person of color narrative does represent something beautiful about our desire for this country. A desire to all be one, to be unified. It speaks of a desire for coalition and connection. All of those things matter. But in my view, it's also about wanting to dispense with the old and to come in with the new. And the changing demographics of this country are not the same as changing the paint on the walls in the dining room. And we need to accept that. And while all these stories and narratives are true and are beautiful in their own way, none of those colors has left the building and we each live in our own story. And that's my big idea. Thank you.
9: Hi, I'm Julie Taymor and I'm a playmaker. I play in theater, opera, film, and hopefully with your mind and your heart. So I love this this festival. I think festival is a great word. The one thing that I heard over and over again is the loss of how do we keep the values, the values of in, and ethics and morality and how that's going, because there's a loss of, of children wanting to be a part of organized religion. Now, if we go back to the origin of arts, we all know that the arts came out of religion. And the fact that we have removed arts from our children's education is... We all know that's appalling, but we, ha- we have to really think how seriously religion which can cause people to, co- to have major wars and can elicit unbelievable power out of people, the same as with the arts. And that's why they're wonderfully dangerous. I love playing with fire. I heard a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful um, expression that came from a rabbi through Anna DeVere Smith. And we've been talking about the heart. The line was, a whole heart is a broken heart. Because through the crack, the light comes. And we have to remember that this kind of edgy, danger, irrational, we heard it when we heard about Steve Jobs last night, or if you read the book, that there has to be a point where everything can't be perfectly put into the technology, and it all works beautifully. I said the other day, you have to stop looking down. You have to look up. Well, I have one idea that came from Bali years ago. And it was once a year. It's kind of Jewish, actually. Once a year, nobody speaks and the lights are off. Think about that as a game, as a play. If everybody in their family said, We're going to play this game, we're turning off the lights, we could have a campfire, but let's turn off the lights and tell stories. Focusing, playing, shutting down, this will elicit tremendous imagination. It's very important for the health, the spirituality of our culture, that we keep the arts absolutely firmly rooted in our families and in our education and in our communities. Thank you.
4: My name is Sherry Turkle, and I study technology and culture. And my big idea is that we face a crisis in empathy and that we can cure it with conversation. These days, we readily admit that in business and in love, we would often rather text or message or send an email than talk face to face. Why? We can control our time, we can multitask, and we can have the feeling that we're getting things right. And it all adds up to a flight from conversation, at least from the kinds of conversation that's open-ended and spontaneous, the kinds of conversation in which we play with ideas, in which we allow ourselves to be fully present and fully vulnerable. Yet those are exactly the kinds of conversations in which empathy flourishes and intimacy flourishes. Distracted at our dinner tables and our living rooms, at our business meetings and in our classrooms, we find traces of a new silent spring which is the term that Rachel Carson coined when we were ready to see that with technological change had come an assault on our environment. Now we've arrived at another moment of recognition, but this time technology is implicated in an assault on empathy. Research shows that even a silent phone on a lunch table between two people causes them to share less with each other. In another experiment, the very presence of a phone on the periphery of a landscape, kind of in the periphery of your vision, leaves people feeling less connected to each other, less interested in each other, less empathic toward each other. So it's not surprising that in the past 20 years, we've seen a 40% decline in the markers for empathy among college students. But we're resilient. The human spirit is resilient. In one study, in only five days at a summer camp with no devices, with no electronic devices, Children begin to relearn the ability to identify with the feelings of others. How do they do that? They talk to each other. Face-to-face conversation is the most human and the most humanizing thing that we do. So this isn't about giving up our phones. It's about using them mindfully. And when we do, Conversation is there to reclaim. For the failing connections of our digital age, it's the talking cure. Thank you.
10: Hi, my name is Matt Crowley. I'm a recent Stanford grad and I now work at Apple as a uh, manufacturing designer. Uh, That's about all I can say about that job. But (laughs) um, uh, I I want you guys to take out your phones and take a look at them. Really, take a look at them. Have you guys ever wondered about the hundreds of parts that go into that phone, or what they're made out of, or who makes them, or how they're made? You probably haven't. Uh, The past generation perfected mass production and distribution of goods, be it a car, bike, your phone. But in the process, they separated the product from the story. And the story is a product's genesis, where it comes from, who it's made by, and how it's made. My former professor and the founder of IDEO, David Kelly, once told me that if a product were a jet, then the story is its fuel. But what happens when you lose the fuel? As much as companies would love to have you think that your phone shows up on your doorstep, magically untouched by human hands, the truth is that it actually takes a huge amount of time, effort, and skill to produce this thing. And when you start forgetting it, like we have now, You start losing respect for your products. You no longer have pride of ownership, so it's easy to discard when it gets dinged, broken or the new one comes out. But the good news is designers are starting to realize that, and they're taking advantage of it. For the first time since the Industrial Revolution, and thanks to the internet, people are starting to be able to make a living by just making one product incredibly well. And they're taking advantage, these craftsmen and women are starting companies because of it. Companies like Dodo Case, Rickshaw Bags, or Cut Brooklyn. And when you look on their websites, they're not only highlighting their products, but they're showing videos of the people who made them and how they're made. So that's my big idea. I want you guys to think the next time you're about to buy a product, take a look at it and try and figure out its story. Try and figure out where it was made, who it was made by, and what the intention behind it was. Because if you give the product back its story, you'll start keeping things longer, and you might actually start loving the things you own. Thank you.
11: Hi, I'm Lori Gottlieb, and I'm the author of Marry Him, the Case for Settling for Mr. Good Enough. And, it's not about settling. And How to Land Your Kid in Therapy, Why the Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness May Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods. And the takeaway idea I'd like to leave you with is um, The secret to happiness and the way to live the so-called good life is to stop looking for happiness for our kids and for ourselves. Because in our culture and for a certain uh, group of people, and I won't name names, um, happiness has become a drug that is as addictive as heroin. You put the needle in again and again, thinking that this or that will fill you up, when all it does is make you want another happiness hit. More money, more success, more recognition... Or, as I like to say as a journalist, how many bylines does a person really need? The key to the good life is to strive for the ordinary over the special. Studies show that people who consider themselves to be ordinary, which is kind of a dirty word in this room, are more content in their life than those who feel that they're better than others. And let's face it, being better than others is a little bit about what special really means. As we saw in Ellen Galinsky's National Study of American Kids, their message for their parents was simple to chill the heck out. (laughs) Ask your grown-up kids what they remember most fondly about their childhoods, and it's not the fancy vacations or the music camp or the $6,000 Princeton Review class that you got to help them get into their first choice school that rejected them anyway. (laughs) In my therapy practice, what people say is this. Their fondest memories are playing Scrabble before bed, stirring pancake batter on a Sunday morning, tossing a ball out front, hanging out in their pajamas until noon, and those silly inside family jokes that still make them laugh 20 years later. So I ask you this. Do you want to realize at the end of your life that you stressed yourself out chasing something that you had right in front of you all along? Take the needle out and take a bubble bath instead.
12: I'm David Kennedy. I teach history at Stanford University. And for the last several days, I've participated in, contributed to, and audited uh, several sessions in two different tracks here at the festival on war and peace on the one hand and democracy on the other. So from my final remarks or thoughts, I was trying to knit those two strands of our deliberations together. And historian that I am, my mind went back 2,056 years to so some, some words penned by Marcus Tullius Cicero in a book written in 44 B.C. called De Officius, or On Duties. And I think uh, these nine simple words do as much as anybody could do, I think, to sum up the lesson I'm taking away from this week's discussion. And since I'm a professor and a card-carrying pedant, uh, I'm going to give it to you in the original. <laughs> Parvi anum sunt foris arma, nisi est concilium domi. <laughs> <laughs> Arms are of no use in the field unless there is wise counsel at home.
13: I'm here today to tell you about the incredible things that happen to children and adult lives when we open mathematics. I am a Stanford professor of mathematics education and the founder of u So we have a math crisis in this country, children everywhere are failing, inequities are widespread. Why? Because math classrooms are boring, procedural, rote learning calculations. Just as bad, we tell children all the time that they can't do well in math. But real math is visual, creating, exciting and accessible. So at Ucubed, we're teaching the world of teachers and parents how to open up math. We're also teaching the incredible new brain science that's so important for math and I want to share three things from that today. Uh, First, everyone can learn math. All the evidence is showing us that brains can grow and change. Second, mistakes in math grow your brain. And the most important learning opportunities are when we're struggling, when we're making mistakes, when things are hard. And third, and this is pretty amazing, the beliefs we hold about ourselves, whether we believe we can do something, actually change the mathematical working of our brains. We need to transform math classrooms and the messages given to kids. The good news is it's easy to open up math, and I'm going to give you two examples. First, a standard math question in classrooms everywhere is find the area of an 8 by 3 rectangle. What do you do? Students perform a calculation, 8 times 3. Or we open it up and we say, see how many rectangles you can find with an area of 24. When we do that, kids' eyes light up. They're trying to find things, they're investigating, they make drawings, they're connecting uh, proportions of length and width. It's amazing. Another example we can give, you can ask kids one divided by two-thirds. What will they do? They'll struggle, they'll try and flip, Uh, they'll do procedures, they'll get confused. Or we can say to them, find the answer to one divided by two-thirds and prove it visually. When that happens, everything changes. In my math classes at Stanford, I I say to students, show me the most creative representation you can give me of these mathematical ideas, and you would be blown away by what they produce. Children and adults are inspired when we open math and we invite thinking and creativity. We can do this. We've had over a million hits on our website in the last six months, parents, And teachers are excited. If we open math in classrooms, we will inspire millions more students and teachers. So please come and join our math revolution.
1: That's Jo Bowler, professor of math and teacher education at Stanford. Before her, you heard from Ideas Festival speakers over the years giving their big ideas on how to improve life and the lives of others. Next week, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of a talk from the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival called, Is Violence a Function of Our Culture? New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu sits down with the Atlantic's ta Coates and Jeffrey Goldberg to discuss homicide, violent crime, police violence, and mass incarceration. They look at the cause of the crisis, the role of culture, and potential solutions. Then later this month, listen for a special series of podcasts recorded on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival. I'll step away from the mic and allow our hand-selected podcast takeover hosts to step in and interview experts in the fields of education, sex, crime and punishment, civil rights, and more. The takeover series ramps up in late June. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening.